Welcome to The Rock Podcast. Our guest speaker this morning, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, deals with the sobering topic of standing before God at what is called in the scriptures the judgment seat of Christ, a place where every Christian will be evaluated for reward. Let's join Mark now as he turns to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for this most intriguing subject. All right, I welcome you back to your seats. It is good to see you all. Wow, what a big 8.30 service. Wow, you've broken a record. All right, folks, uh, as you make your way to your seat, I'm going to introduce our guest speaker. Well, great timing, great timing, because we planned this uh, uh, Sunday long before I knew the senior pastor's conference was this week. So it allowed me to be able to go down there and stress-free. I didn't have to worry about coming back and uh, preparing to speak. And so more importantly, the timing, things have heated up in the Middle East, as you have noticed. Some 500 rockets over the skies of uh, Jerusalem. Well, we've got somebody who knows a little bit about that subject here with us this morning. How, How cool is that? You know, that the Lord would just align that all. Uh, Mark is uh, really a leading Bible prophecy expert. Uh, He's written over 20 books. If you were, how many of you were here the last time he spoke a few years ago? Awesome. Uh, He's also a senior pastor, and he's been an adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, In other words, he's smart. All right. (laughs) Now, um... And you know what I like most about him is he's not weird. <laughs> All right? Because you say, oh, we've got a speaker coming. He's an expert in prophecy. And people are like, oh, <laughs> I may be out of town that weekend. Because, you know, you hear prophecy and you just think, well, out there, you know. Well, this guy, you know, I saw him on CNN, you know. I'm like, oh, he's well grounded. He's, he's credible. You know, he's just not crazy (laughs) like your pastor. (laughs) Thank you for not saying amen. (laughs) Though you were tempted, you resisted. Awesome. All right, yeah, so he's been, you know, sharing the gospel on MSNBC, and if ever there was a place uh, to share the gospel, uh, Fox, the History Channel, and uh, really a former attorney, but now he's a new creation in Christ, don't worry. I had to do it. I did not resist temptation there. I noticed on his bio that we are exactly one week apart. It's his birthday week, and we are both turning the speed limit. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Welcome, Mark, here. All right. Be nice to him. All right. Pastor Mark. Got back there and he said, we're turning the speed limit. It said 65, you know, I guess uh, there's a lot of different speed limits out there. So to be careful when you say that. But it's, it is great to be back here with you again. Um, I told uh, Cheryl, uh, she was with me, in fact, here last time we were here. But uh, I don't say this everywhere I go, but th- I remember the audience here distinctly. And it, this is one of the best audiences, best, best churches I've been in as far as just, I can tell you all love the Bible, you love the Lord. And that's a, it's a treat. I mean, I, Cheryl and I have commented on that many times since we, we left here. And so I'm so glad that uh, the pastor invited us to come back and be here again. I do want to thank, uh, give a special thanks hey, to Steve and Kathy for their uh, being so gracious, allowing us to stay in their, their place there, their bed and breakfast in Healdsburg. That's a beautiful place. I feel like uh, we went into the place there and uh, felt like we were in the millennial kingdom when we went there, so that's how nice it is. So I don't want to get, don't want to get too used to that. That's so beautiful. In fact, Oklahoma, though, you know, we have really hot weather there, but this coming week, a few days are going to be in the 70s for the high which is very unusual there. I usually say in Oklahoma it's so hot, you know, the cows are given evaporated milk. I mean, it's bad there in the summer, but 
But anyway, it's, uh, but it is great to be here and wonderful place to stay and just you all's hospitality. We appreciate it very much. And coming back here again, I'm reminded of a story I heard years ago about a wife. She went with her husband down to the local mall and went with one of her friends. And after a while, her husband wandered off and several hours went by and I couldn't couldn't find him, didn't see him anywhere, and this was back before the days of cell phones, so she got worried and called the, the mall security, and they, they came and said, well, give us a, a description of your husband. said, well, he, he's very tall, he's extremely handsome, blonde hair, he's built like an Olympic athlete, I mean, you know, he'll just stand out in a crowd, and so his, uh, he, the security guard said, okay, and went away, and the, the friend said, well, that doesn't describe your husband at all, says, your, your husband's short, and he's got a big belly, and he's bald-headed, and whatever, and she said, yeah, I know, but who wants him back? <laughs> well, I'm back, so here I am. So, what I what I want to do in our time together this morning, uh, I want to bring kind of a, a what I hope will be a really practical prophecy message this hour, and then the next hour I'm going to bring a message on signs of the times, and then tonight I want to bring a message kind of talking about this whole idea of blood moons. A lot of you've heard about that, kind of debunking a lot of that, and then I want to have a question and answer time tonight. So hopefully we'll cover a lot of ground, but this morning I want to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, yeah, verses 9 to 11. If you'll turn there with me, I want to bring a message. To me, this is one of my favorite prophecy messages because it's so practical. A lot of people think Bible prophecy isn't practical. It doesn't have anything to do with everyday life. But I hope to dispel that myth here this morning as we think about the future and how it impacts our life now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. Now, if you know anything about this chapter, the first eight verses here, the context is life after death. Paul's talking here about the new body we're going to receive someday in heaven and how we, uh, we walk now uh, by faith, uh, not by sight. But then down in verse 9, he says this. This is one of the great verses in the New Testament. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether we're here in this life or whether we go to be the Lord, our goal in life, our ambition in life is to be pleasing to Him. And then he says this, because or for. In other words, here's the reason we want to be pleasing to the Lord, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also uh, in your consciences. Well, may the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. So a story I ran across some years ago I like about the, the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Many of you may have heard of that back in the 1800s. It was the, the biggest thing in the world at that time, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. And they, they went on the road over to Europe. And in 1899, they performed in Berlin, Germany. And the German people loved uh, this Wild West show, as did all the other people in Europe. But one of the main attractions of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was Annie Oakley. Uh, she was known as Little Sure Shot. In fact, uh, Annie Oakley was the first female superstar in show business. And what she was known for is her sharp shooting ability. Uh, she could uh, split several playing cars if they would be tossed in the air before they landed. Um, she could shoot a metal coin tossed in the air 27 yards away. She could shoot it out of the air. Um, she could, her, her, one of her acts was to use a mirror and shoot an apple some distance away with a rifle over her shoulder. Any man that took her on was always defeated. She was the, the greatest shot of her day. Well, on one particular occasion, or, or, uh, during her show, one of the things she always did was she would ask for a volunteer to come up, and they would put a lit cigar in their mouth, and she'd shoot the ashes off the end of the cigar with a forty-five pistol. Now, you couldn't do that nowadays. You'd get sued or whatever and all that, but back then you could do this. Well, she'd ask for a volunteer. Obviously, no one would volunteer, so her husband was always in the audience, and he'd act like he was a, just some guy out there, and he would come up there. Frank Butler was his name, and she'd take the forty-five Colt pistol and shoot the ashes off the end of the cigar. While they were in Berlin, Germany, though, when she asked for a volunteer to come up to shoot the ashes off the end of the cigar, the newly crowned German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, volunteered. Well, everybody in the crowd was amazed. And of course, she was kind of nervous. And so he comes up there and puts this lit cigar in his mouth. And she takes dead aim from, from really a fairly long ways away and shoots the ashes right off the end uh, of the cigar. Now, 15 years later, Kaiser Wilhelm plunged the world into the First World War. And it caused Annie Oakley to, to wonder how world events would have changed if she had unfortunately missed and hit the Kaiser 
So one of the things we know is that Annie Oakley sent a letter to Kaiser Wilhelm after the start of World War I and asked the opportunity to take another shot. <laughs> and uh, she never got a reply back from him. But I've thought about that story quite a bit, though, because it teaches us a very important lesson in life, and that is in life you only get one shot. You get one shot at life. There aren't any do-overs. There's no dress rehearsals for life. And because of that, every one of us want to make sure that we take dead aim with our life. We want to make sure that we take dead aim with it. We make our life count for Christ. Because according to this scripture we've read this morning, a day is coming for all of us where we're going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives as a believer. Uh, To give an account of what we did with that one shot that we had at life. And we're all going to face a final examination at this event known as the judgment seat of Christ. Now, in our time together, what I want to do is answer a few key questions about this coming event. I want to talk about the participants of this judgment, that is, who's going to be there. I want to talk about the place, where is it going to happen, uh, the period, when's it going to happen, uh, the purpose, why are we going to be judged, and then I want to spend most of our time at the end on what I call the preparation or how we can get ready for this coming judgment seat of Christ. So I want to begin with uh, the who in this passage. Who are the participants? Notice in verse 10. I kind of want to just take this verse apart here. He says, for we must all appear. Now that word we there includes Paul. And I, I take it that the judgment seat of Christ is for believers only. This is only for believers in Jesus Christ. Now, This judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, I don't believe is the same as the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. If you read Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15, there's a judgment there called the great white throne. At the great white throne, the people that appear there are the lost of all the ages who appear there to be judged according to their deeds. The judgment seat of Christ here is a judgment for believers only. It's a judgment of believers when we, after we've been caught to heaven uh, to be with the Lord. So at the, at the great white throne, the lost are going to be judged there for their sins. At the great white throne, we're going to appear there before the Lord to be rewarded for uh, the things that we've done. And that, that's the thing to think about. Every person here this morning... Every person alive here in in, in Santa Rosa and in this area, we're all going to appear at one of two judgments. So the issue is not, do I get judged or not? The issue is, which judgment will I be at? And every one of us here will either stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a believer, or we're going to stand before the great white throne as an unbeliever. That's the choice for every person. Because notice here the next words here, we must all appear. In other words, it's not optional. This is an obligation. It's It's necessity. So every one of us will appear at one of these two future judgments. And then notice uh, the word here, we must all appear. That's every church-age believer. Now, I don't want to get into this in too much detail, but my understanding is at the judgment seat of Christ, it's only going to be church-age believers. You say, well, what's the church age? The church age started at the day of Pentecost, and it's going to end with the rapture. My, my understanding is, is that Old Testament saints, those who died during Old Testament times, they're not going to be resurrected and get their new bodies till the end of the seven-year tribulation, till the second coming of Jesus. And the reason I say that is, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it seems to place the resurrection of Old Testament believers at the end of the coming time of tribulation. Uh, Also in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when it uh, talks there about the rapture of believers, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. Old Testament saints are not in Christ. Now, they're believers. They they trust in the Lord. But we are placed in Christ by the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. So when he says the dead in Christ will rise, I take it that's church-age believers. The, the Old Testament saints, their bodies won't be resurrected till the end of that coming time of tribulation that's coming on the earth. But the point here is, is that no one from the church age is exempt. Uh, Paul even says, includes himself, we must all appear. And notice in here how it switches from we to the, to the plural to the singular. Notice he says that each one may be recompensed for his deed, deeds according to what he has done. So it's going to be individual. And uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 10 says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So it's like someone said years ago, all of us are going to have to sing solo before God. 
You can stand here in a nice crowd like this and sing. If you can't sing, nobody knows the difference, right? Maybe a couple people on the side of you. You can kind of blend in real good. But we're going to have to sing solo before God. So it's all church-age believers. That's who's going to be there. Now, the next thing is the place. Notice he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, those words judgment seat are just one word in the Greek. It's the word bema, the bema seat of Christ. And a bema in that day meant a a, a raised platform or literally a a step, something that required steps to ascend. So what I'm standing up on here, this platform, this is a bema really in that day. It's just kind of a raised platform, something that took uh, steps to ascend. And every major Greek and Roman city had a Bema seat or had a, a Bema in the marketplace. In fact, I've got a picture of one here in the city of Corinth. If you look at the, the large protrusion there on the left-hand side, if you've ever been to Corinth, that's called the Acro-Corinth. And it stands about 2,000 feet above the city. That's where the temple of Aphrodite was. But that stack of stones right there kind of in the left-hand side there, that's the Bema in Corinth. And that whole big area you see there, that was the marketplace or the agora. Uh, the, the Greek word was the agora. The Roman word is the forum. But it's where people came during the day. To, so the believers there in Corinth, that's where they came to, to buy meat. And that's the whole issue of meat, do you buy meat sacrifice to idols and all of that. But that's the, the judgment seat there. And here's a close-up of it. And remember in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, Paul says that he was dragged before the judgment seat before a man named Gallio there in the city of Corinth. And you can see that beautiful Acre Corinth in the background. But so Paul stood on the, the pavement right in front of that judgment seat. So when Paul tells the people at Corinth, one of these days you're going to all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ... They all knew what that was. They'd walk down there. Every time they went in the marketplace, they saw this judgment seat or this Bema seat uh, that was there. And he tells us here that there's going to be a Bema seat in heaven. And he calls it here, notice, the judgment seat of Christ. Because Jesus Christ will be the judge at this judgment seat. In fact, in John 5.22, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus will be the judge at this judgment seat. So all of us are going to be judged at the Bema seat in heaven by our Lord. Now, the third question concerning the judgment seat is when is it going to happen or the period of it? Back in 1 Corinthians 5, it's 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it says this, when the Lord comes, just talking about the rapture, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will disclose the motives of men's hearts. So it's telling us this is going to happen when the Lord comes. So the Lord's going to come, and all of us who are alive on the earth, uh, we're going to get caught up to be with the Lord at the rapture. Those who've died, their bodies will be raised and be rejoined with their perfected spirit. We're going to be caught up uh, to be with the Lord. And it says, when the Lord comes, then he's going to bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. So that's when the rapture is going to take place. And I've got another slide here. This is from a really good book called Charting the End Times by Tommy Ice and Tim LaHaye. I always tell people when I have a chart that looks this good, I didn't make it, so you can be sure of that. But as you can see on the left-hand side there, I believe the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. Now, other things could happen before the rapture, but nothing has to happen before the rapture. So the rapture will take place, and we'll be caught up with the Lord, and then seven years later, at least seven years later, we'll talk about that next hour, uh, we're going to come back with him at the end of that tribulation. But in heaven, during the tribulation period, that's when the judgment seat of Christ, I believe, will take place. That's when we're going to be appearing there uh, before the Lord. So we've seen the participants. It's every church-age Christian. Uh, The place is the judgment seat of Christ, and the period of this is right after the rapture in heaven. Now that brings us to a fourth question, an important one, is why is there going to be a judgment seat of Christ? Now before we look at what the purpose of the judgment seat is, let's make sure we know what it's not. The judgment seat or the Bema seat judgment is not to determine if we get into heaven or not. That was already determined here on earth when we trusted Christ as our Savior. The judgment seat is not to determine if we get into heaven. The judgment seat is not, the issue there is not where you're going to spend eternity, but it's how you're going to spend eternity. In other words, the subject is rewards. The issue at the judgment seat will not be your salvation, but it's going to be the issue of your rewards. 
And, and here's the beautiful thing in the Bible that we all need to remember is our salvation is based on Christ's work for us. Rewards are based in on our works for Christ. We don't want to get those mixed up. My salvation is totally based upon the work of Jesus Christ for me. I can't add anything to it. It's a finished work, a perfect sacrifice. But once we become a believer, then we do works for the Lord, and that is the issue uh, at the judgment seat. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then what does the next verse say? But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved by God's grace through faith unto good works. The works come after our salvation, not... Uh, before it. And, and let me just say this here this morning. I'm, I'm a visitor here, so I don't know anyone here. I assume most of you here know Christ as your Savior. But you always like to remember Jesus had 12 disciples, and one of them was lost. So you get in any group of any size, uh, the, the chances are there's someone who really doesn't know Christ as their Savior. And it, it, I want to ask you have you trusted Jesus Christ alone apart from your works? We're saved not by our doing, we're saved by His dying. We're saved not by our merit. We're saved by his mercy. And if you have believed, well, maybe you have kind of something to do with it or it's kind of, you know, part God and part you. No, it's all of him. And if you've never received that pardon that Jesus purchased for you when he died on the cross, oh, that's what you need to do this morning. So the, the purpose of this judgment seat is not to see if we get into heaven. That was decided when we trusted the Lord. You say, well, what is the purpose of it? Well, notice verse 10 again. It lays it right out for us. We must each appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that or in order that. So it's telling us the purpose. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in, done in the body. So the purpose of this Bema seat is for you and for me, for our life as a Christian to be reviewed and to be rewarded by the Lord. That's the purpose of it. Our service and our ministry as a believer is going to be evaluated. We're going to get a reward. It's the evaluation of our works to receive a reward. Now, part of the problem here, this bothered me, really bothered me years ago. Notice what he says, though, in verse 10, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, in the Greek language, there's a Greek word that means bad in the sense of evil, and that's not the word that's used here. There's another Greek word, though, for bad that simply means bad in the sense of worthless, it's the word phallos, and that's the word that's used here. So it's not the bad that you've done in the sense of evil or sin. It's those things that are worthless or not worthy of a reward. So it's the things that are bad. It's things that are worthless, phallos. That's a, a word I use for my golf game most of the time, phallos. It's a good Greek word. It's worthless. You can say that out on the golf course, and people wonder what you're talking about. Uh, look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a parallel passage here that helps us, I think, understand what this means, the good and the bad, a little bit better. We could spend a lot of time in this. This is a great passage. And what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about the church at Corinth. You remember during Paul's second missionary journey, the city of Corinth was his, was his uh, headquarters. It says in uh, chapter 18 of, of the book of Acts that Paul was there with them for 18 months preaching the Word of God. That's all it says that he did. He was preaching the Word to the people. And Paul says here in, in, second, in, in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse uh, 9, he says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. He's talking about the foundation that he laid there at the church when he was there for that year and a half. And another is building upon it, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. I tell you, this is a great message here for pastors and leaders in a church. The only foundation you can lay for a church is Jesus Christ. And then those who come along after that foundation is laid, he's saying, you better be careful how you build on it. And what he's saying here in this passage as we go on down, he's saying, you better build with materials that last. You know, we can, we can do work in a church a lot of times that really looks good and maybe causes quick growth and a lot of things, but it doesn't stand the test of time. 
And I've often said about myself that the church I'm at with my, my wife, and I've had the privilege to be there 23 years. I can always remember how long we've been there because our son Sam was five months old when we got there, and he's 23. So 23 years we've been there. But, you know, I'll, I'll often say that really our ministry there, the, the end of that will not be told until we're long gone. It's, it's what the children who are there who've grown up, how, what they grow up and what they become like. It's a, it's a long-term investment that we have in the local church. And he says, Paul says, verse 10, according to the grace of God who was given to me, I laid the foundation, others building upon it. Then he says, verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So you got that different material you can choose from. And then he says, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Notice not the quantity of it. Now, quantity is good too, but God's interested most of all in the quality of it. If any man's work which he's built upon it remains, he, he will receive a reward. So if you use gold and silver and precious stones, when the fire of God's judgment comes, it's going to remain. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now again, the the interpretation of this passage has to do with Paul and the church at Corinth. But we can make an application of this to our individual lives. We've had a foundation laid in our lives, which is Jesus Christ. And now we're building upon that foundation. And we get to choose the material we use. Will we use what lasts, what is uh, good and lasting and rewardable? Or will we use that which is worthless and which is unrewardable? That's the picture here. The worthless will go up in smoke. Uh, notice here, too, we aren't burned up, but the worthless deeds are burned up. In fact, I like what J. Vernon McGee said years ago. He said, at the judgment seat of Christ, many of us will smell like we were bought at a fire sale. And uh, I like that statement there. Maybe a lot of smoke going up there. But the beauty of it is here, we will make it through. And, and I don't think our sins are going to be an issue at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't think God's going to bring up our sins. Uh, Jesus paid the price for our sins. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me, has eternal life, shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Romans 8, 1, there, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So at the judgment seat, we're not going to be condemned for our sins, but we're going to be evaluated for our service before him. I love that old song, It Is Well With My Soul, that that one verse that says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We get the judgment seat. It's not going to be our sins that are brought up. And you say, well, now, wait a minute, though. If it says here, though, we're going to be recompensed for the things done in the body, whether good or bad, then what is the bad here? What makes these things bad or, or makes these things worthless? Well, I call these things uh, bad good works, if you will, in this passage here. The, the bad things aren't sin. They're bad good works, I guess, in a way. And what makes them bad is they're things done with the wrong motive. There's a lot of things we do that are good in themselves, but maybe they're done for self-glory. In other words, they're not worthy of reward. They're not rewardable. And see, here's the kicker in the spiritual life. God not only knows what you do and what I do, He knows why we do it. He knows the motive. In fact, in... uh, our passage back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, the word appear there, we must all appear before the judgment seat, means to be made manifested, to be disclosed. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it says, when the Lord comes, He's going to bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and He's going to expose the motives of men's hearts. So the Lord knows why we do what we do. It's like a story I heard years ago about a group of children lined up in a cafeteria in a Catholic school, and they were uh, making their way through the line. At the, at the head of the line, there was a large bowl of apples, and it had a sign there, uh, take only one. A, a nun had written this sign, take only one. Remember, God is watching. So it's a bowl of apples. They were all thinking about that. When you get to the end, they were going along, and one of the children had written a note on the stack of cookies, and it says, take all the cookies you want. God's watching the apples. Now... 
We all know the truth of the matter is God's watching the apples and the cookies both, right? And that's a sobering thing. I think about that a lot of times when I'm by myself. God knows everything. Uh, God's omniscient eye not only sees to us, God sees through us. He knows our motives. He knows why we do what we do. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and thinking this. I've thought this before. Well, am I going to get anything when I still get the judgment? Am I, I going to get any reward at all? Uh, will every believer get a reward? Because at my best, I can't think of anything that I do that doesn't have something of Mark Hitchcock in it. You know, the only things that don't have some type of myself in it are probably just the things I do so quickly I don't have time to think about them. But if you get much time to think about something, somehow you get yourself involved in it in some way. It's hard to do things with 100% pure motives. And any reward I get is going to purely be the grace of God. But I take, I take solace in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. The very end of that passage says this, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Did you notice it's the singular? The Lord's going to appear. He's going to bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, now stop and think about that for a moment. The, the shepherd of the stars... Uh, the creator of the universe is going to praise and he's going to reward me. And we often think in heaven, we're going to praise God. And we would say, well, God's never going to praise me and we're going to praise him. He's the one worthy of praise. That's true. But it says in that passage, each man's praise will come to him from God. God will find something in our lives to praise. Now, ultimately, the praise goes back to him because he's the one who, who gave us the power and the ability to do it. But that's, that's a, a staggering thing to, to think about. Now, one other thing here before we move on to our final point here is what are the rewards going to be that we get in heaven? I've thought about this a lot, and the Bible doesn't tell us, but we know it's got to be good because the Lord tells us to labor for reward. Uh, One of the things is in in Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders there, I think that's a picture of the church of Jesus Christ in heaven, says they have crowns and they cast these crowns before Jesus' feet. So I think we're going to receive crowns, and we'll talk about some of those as we go through the rest of the message here in a few moments. But they're going to be uh, crowns that we cast at his feet. Uh, That's where that singing group got their their, uh, name, by the way, Casting Crowns as a a picture of that. Another, Another reward is greater opportunity to serve the Lord greater capacity and opportunity to serve the Lord. Daniel 12.3 says, those who have insight will shine like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I think we're going to have greater capacities in heaven and abilities to reflect the glory of God based upon our life here and now. H.I. Ironside used to tell the illustration of you think of a big chandelier and maybe you put in a, a 10-watt bulb in one socket and a 20-watt in another and maybe a 40-watt in another one, a 75 and a 100. They're all there and shining, but they have different capacities to, to shine the light. And I think that's something of what's spoken of in Scripture. I got a great quote from Warren Wiersbe a few years ago. He said this, Every cup will be full in heaven, but some cups will be larger than others. That's a good way to put it, isn't it? Every cup will be full. No one's going to be there in heaven and say, well, you know, my cup's only 75% full. I got shortchanged. Everybody's cup will be full, but some of us will have larger cups than others. And it's how we live in the here and now that's going to determine that in the future. And then one other thing is is greater uh, places of responsibility to serve in the kingdom. Remember in Luke 19, Jesus said, some of you are going to rule over five cities, some over ten cities. I don't know we can really fathom all that means, but during the millennial kingdom, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, 2, it says we're going to judge the angels. So we're going to have greater places of authority based on what we do here now. And as someone has said years ago, this is training time for reigning time here on this earth. So the key idea, though, is this. The person you are today will determine the rewards you receive tomorrow. The person you are today will determine the rewards you receive tomorrow. Your life and my life right now will impact our life for all of eternity. So it matters greatly what we do with the one shot that we have at life. Now, we've looked at these first questions. Who's going to be involved in this? The church-age believers. It's going to be in heaven. It's going to be after the rapture. The purpose is to review and reward our lives. I want to spend the rest of our time now on how we get ready. You know, tests are a part of life, and you may have been in a class growing up on a Friday afternoon, and the teacher said, we're going to have a test on Monday. 
And if you'll take out your pencil, I'll go ahead and give you the questions that are going to be on the test. Well, if you're any kind of student at all, you're going to say, man, this is a, I've hit the bonanza here, and take out your pencil. You're going to say, I want to write these questions down. It's going to save me a lot of time uh, over the weekend. Well, look, God has scheduled a final exam for every one of us. It's not going to be a pop quiz. You can't walk out of here this morning and say, I didn't know about this because you know about it now when you leave here this morning. It's on God's timetable, and God has graciously given us the test questions ahead of time. If you go through the New Testament, you can find about 15 to 20 things that the Lord is going to reward us for in heaven someday that we're going to be judged for. And I've got 12 of them here this morning of the main ones I want to go through. And I'm going to put these up here for us uh, so that you can uh, write these down and get the test questions written down ahead of time. So these are 12 things that will be evaluated and reviewed and rewarded in heaven someday. The first one is how we treat other believers. Hebrews 6.10 says this, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward His name and having ministered to and still ministering to the saints. God is not going to forgive your ministry to God's people is what He's telling us here. I like the old poem. It says, To live above with saints we love, oh, yes, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, now that's a different story. <laughs> And, uh, you know, sometimes we can be hard to get along with or another believer can be. You know, when you, you think about this, in many churches, it's shameful how the people in the church treat one another sometimes over the most petty things. Uh, they'll, they'll be angry with one another and, and uh, hurt one another and say hurtful things, trying to get their own way in selfishness. It's, it's really a shame of what happens in so many churches. We don't want to be like that. God's going to say, look, when you get to heaven someday, how you treated one another in the, in, in the family of God, I'm going to reward that. Another one, and this is a real obvious one we all know about, is how we employ our God-given talents, abilities, and opportunities. Remember the parable of the, the talents in Matthew 25, the parable of the minas or the pounds in Luke, 6, in Luke 19, kind of similar parables. But what those are telling us is, is the master gives uh, responsibilities, gives a stewardship to his people, and he goes away on a long journey. And when he comes back, he rewards them according to what they've done with what he gave them. And every one of us here, we have abilities, we have talents, we have opportunities that God has given to us. Don't ever say, well, I don't have any gift I can use for the Lord. The Bible says you do. God's given every one of us some uh, spiritual gift, a divine enablement that He wants us to use to to edify God's people and to uh, bring glory to Him. So find out that, that kingdom assignment that God has for you, what abilities you have, and use those things to the glory of God and maximize them so that when He comes back, you're going to give Him a return on His investment uh, that He placed in your life. A third thing This one isn't too convicting. Uh, How we use our money. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21 there? He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasure in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean you don't save money. Every person should save money. You go back and read the Proverbs. It talks about, uh, you know, you sluggard, go and watch the ant, you know, who stores up and saves for the hard times. So we have to remember in the, in the Bible, there's a balance. When Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, he's saying, don't just, just hoard it all and save it all here. Send some of it on ahead is what he's telling us. That's not to be the focus of our lives. You, he's saying you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And that should be the focus of our lives. In 1 Timothy 6.18, it says this, Be generous, ready to share, storing up for yourselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future. In Matthew 10.41, it talks here about supporting people who are in full-time ministry. And I love this. It says, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. Ministries that you help support, those ministries couldn't function if you didn't help support them. And so you get part of the reward that that ministry receives for the things they do for the Lord. You support a a missionary who's gone overseas. You're not going overseas, but they're going and you're helping support them. Whatever they do over there in that ministry, you receive a prophet's reward for your support in that. Which one of the things that tells us is you want to give your money and sow it in good soil and in good ministries. Because what those who are taking that money, what they do with it, that's going to be part of the reward you receive in heaven. 
But the point here is, it's not that you don't save money. He's saying, don't allow your possessions to possess you. What you do with your money is going to be rewarded uh, by God. Number four here is how we endure suffering and trials in this life. In uh, James 1.12, it says this, Blessed is the man, happy is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's patiently enduring the trials and the difficulties of life. And if we live long enough, we're going to have them, right? And, you know, it's, a friend used to say, you know, trouble's like bananas. It comes in bunches, you know, and it's true. I mean, it, you know, the, it, the trouble and problems, that's the common denominator of mankind. Everybody has troubles. Everybody has heartaches and sorrows. But when we have them, do we trust in God? Do we cling to Him even when we don't understand it? Do we patiently endure? He says, if you do that, He's going to give you the crown of life. Another one here, this is a, a powerful one, is how we spend our time. How we spend our time. Every one of us get 168 hours a week of time to spend. And, uh, you know, a lot of us really kind of fritter away a lot of our time and waste it. And in Ephesians 5.16, Paul says, uh, he says, buy up the opportunities, literally is the word, redeem the time, be redeeming it, buying every opportunity you can because the days are evil. Look, we live in evil days, and when an opportunity comes along, he's saying, buy it up. In Psalm 90, verses 9 to 12, there's a beautiful section there. But I love Psalm 90. It says, Lord, teach us to number our days so we can present to you a heart of wisdom. We're to count our days, but we're to make our days count as well. It's very easy to waste time. You know, if it really comes down to wasting money or wasting time, I'd rather waste money than time because theoretically, at least, you can get more money. But you can't get more time. When time's gone, it's gone. There was a great preacher in Scotland years ago named Thomas Chalmers uh, back in the 19th century. He became a great preacher and statesman there. But early in his life, he wasted time. Even when he was a pastor, he didn't study diligently. He wasted a lot of his time. And when he got older in life, he became a great servant, a, a, just a, a laborer for the Lord. And someone asked him about the difference in his life. And they said, why were you the way you were when you were younger? And he made this great statement years ago. You can imagine an old Scotsman saying this. He said, I had forgotten two magnitudes. I thought not of the littleness of time, and I recklessly thought not of the greatness of eternity. Think about that. Two great magnitudes, the littleness of time and the greatness of eternity. As Ross was just saying, we're both getting ready to be 55, and I know some of you are a lot younger than that, and that probably, if you think somebody 55 has got one foot in the grave, some of you probably think, man, 55, that's a young person, you know? So it all depends on our perspective. But uh, time goes quickly, and the older I get, the faster it goes. Two great magnitudes to keep in mind, the littleness of time, the greatness of eternity. Another one is uh, how we run the race God has given to us. God has a race for you to run. And here's the beauty of it is God has a race for you to run, and you run your race. I don't have to run your race, and you don't have to run my race. We each run our own race. Hebrews 12, 1, lay aside every encumbrance. Notice what it says here, and the sin which so easily entangles us. doesn't say it's hard for it to do it. It does it easily. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, Those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. So a lot of people say, well, you know, it seems kind of mercenary to, to, to serve God for rewards. God tells us to do it. He says, run in a way that you can win. These rewards I'm going to give you are going to be worth it. God wants us to labor for a reward. Stay in your lane, run your race to the glory of God, and don't worry about somebody else's race they're running and criticizing them for their race. You get in your lane and you run your race to the glory of God, and, and God will reward you. There's another one that's convicting, I think, for us, how effectively we control our body. We have a body that God's given to us, and there's a lot in this culture today to tempt us, to, to tempt the appetites of our body. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul said this. He said, I buffet my body and I make it my slave, lest having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Now, by the way, that word isn't I buffet my body there. It's I buffet my body. I, I, uh, I buffet my body quite often, but uh, too much ice cream is my, is my curse. But, but that word buffet in the Greek literally means to, to, to punch under the eye, to punch black and blue. And all of us have appetites of the body. We have, we have appetites for food. We have sexual appetite. And he's saying here, we, if we're going to be rewarded by God, we have to bring those things under control. And look, we live in a world that's just gone crazy with pornography and all these things that are out there. And I'm sure in an audience this size, I'm speaking here this morning, there's some of you here that are struggling with that. And look, look, when it comes to sins of the flesh, you know what the Bible says? It's real fancy what it tells you to do. Flee. Flee youthful youthful lust. That's what it tells us. Stay away from it. You know, you say, well, how do I overcome pornography and all that? You flee from it. That's the only way to get away from it. If you, if you mess around with it, you're going to get burned, the Bible tells us. It's like what Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. You have to flee from it, from these sins of the flesh. But how effectively we control these bodily appetites. Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my slave. Notice what he says, last having preached to others, I should be disqualified. Now, being disqualified doesn't mean he's going to lose his salvation. The word disqualified, there's a beautiful word in Greek. It's the word adakamas. And what it means is disapproved. And whenever someone broke the rules in the Olympic Games of that day, that's what they were declared to be, adakamas. They were disqualified from the games. So Paul says, if I fail to do this, I'm going to be disqualified from receiving the reward from God that he has for me. It's a sobering thing for us in these days in which we live. There's so much temptation around us. Number eight, how many souls we witness to and win for Christ? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, For who is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? Paul says, look, whenever I stand before the Lord, you Thessalonians are going to be my crown of rejoicing. The people here that I've won to Christ, you're going to be a reward. I'm going to be rewarded for the the opportunity God gave me to bring you to faith in Christ. Look, not all of us here are evangelists. Probably very few of us have the gift of evangelism. But all of us can be witnesses to Christ with our lives and with our lips. I love the best definition I heard years ago of witnessing. It says it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Now, that's what it is. Look, I'm a beggar. You're a beggar. I found Jesus. I found the bread alive. Let me tell you about him. That's it. You know, we're not telling people, when we share the gospel with them, we're not telling them we're any better than they are. We're right in the same place. We're just a beggar. But the only difference between us and them is we, we found the bread of life. Number nine, this is a good one too in our days. How much the doctrine of the rapture means to us? Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who've loved his appearing. So he says, look, there's a special crown of righteousness the Lord will give to all those who love the Lord's appearing. And the fact that it's called a crown of righteousness probably means that uh, those who receive this reward receive it because they lived a righteous life. So if you believe that Jesus is coming back, it's going to change how you live. Like you get up every day and say, you know, perhaps today the Lord might come. And you, you live with that thought, there's some things that you might do that you won't do. And there's some things maybe you wouldn't do that you will do that are, that are good things because you, you, you're gripped with the fact of, of the Lord's coming. So uh, the coming of the Lord and living a righteous life in view of that will be rewarded. Number 10, I love this one, how humble we are. God's going to reward us for humility. I love that. He said, whoever humbles himself as this child, he's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So do you want to be rewarded? You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Then be humble here in this life and, and, and be like a child. It's beautiful to me. In God's kingdom, up is down and down is up. That's God's economy. If you want to go up, go down. If you want to go down, then go up. God humbles the proud, but he exalts uh, those who are humble. I like what uh, Martin Luther said years ago. This is one of my favorite quotes. He said, God created the world out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, then he can make something out of us. It's a good quote, isn't it? God made everything there is out of nothing. If we're nothing, he can make something out of us uh, as well. 
And yeah, you don't get humble by trying to be humble. You get humble by, by seeing yourself as you really are. It's really just, it's getting a greater view of God is really what creates humility in our lives. We, we see how wonderful and powerful and transcendent and great and majestic God is. And then you don't have to put yourself in your right place. You just are in your right place at that point in time. And it's one of the great uh, things to see in others, and God's going to reward it. One, two more things here. One is how faithful we are in our vocation. This will really uh, hit home with all of us when you go out to the workplace or the home, wherever you are tomorrow. Colossians 3.22, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So in your work, if you do your work as unto the Lord, then you're going to receive a reward from him someday for faithfully doing your job. And with God, there is no mundane work. Uh, it's, it's not the work that makes uh, uh, the man. It's the man or the woman who makes the work. You can have a job that's considered maybe in this world to be a very lowly, very menial job. But if you do that job to the glory of God, you can be rewarded greatly for that someday in heaven. So don't ever think, well, you know, I've just got some menial job no one cares about. God cares. He cares how uh, you carry out that work. So everybody's going to be judged for what they do. By the way, there's one group of people that's going to get a stricter judgment for their job than anybody else. You all know who that is. The Bible teachers, right? Pastors. In James 3, 1, he says there, don't let many of you become teachers, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. And the judgment is going to be two things. I think one is the accuracy of what we taught. Was it true? Is it true to what the Bible says? And then secondly, did you apply it to your own life? And that's a, that's a difficult thing. I tell you, you're a preacher, and you're always getting up in some weeks, you know, like I know I come to a passage to preach on patience or something. That's not exactly my strong suit, you know. <laughs> get up there preaching on that. You have to ask yourself, is that really uh, present in my life the way, the way that it should be? In fact, preachers are going to be judged more strictly. I heard someone years ago say that if you get to heaven someday at the judgment seat and you see a line with a bunch of preachers in it, go get in another line. It'll go quicker because uh, they're going to get a, a stricter judgment. It's going to take longer. Uh, for us when we're judged. There's an old story I read years ago about H.A. Ironside, one of my favorite Bible teachers. When he was a young man, he worked for a cobbler, a man who, who repaired shoes, made and repaired shoes. His name was Dan McKay. And uh, one time, H.A. Ironside noticed a cobbler down the street didn't take the meticulous effort and didn't beat the hides and get all the water out of them and all of those things. And, and Ironside asked him, why do you do that? And he says, well, they come back all the quicker this way. And so Ironside went and asked Dan McKay, why do we spend all this time? That was Ironside's job, and they're beating these pieces of leather and said, why do we do this uh, you know, so meticulously? And here's what old Dan McKay said to H.A. Ironside. He said, Harry, I don't cobble shoes for the money I get from my customers. I'm doing this for the glory of God. I expect to see every shoe I've ever repaired in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't want the Lord to say to me in that day, Dan, this was a poor job. You didn't do your best here. I want him to be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then Ironside says this. He went on to explain that just as some men are called to preach, he was called to fix shoes. And then only as he did this well would his testimony count for God. And Ironside said, it was a lesson I have never forgotten. Often when I'm tempted to carelessness and to slipshod effort, I thought of dear devoted Dan McKay. It stirred me to seek to do all that I can for the one who died to redeem me. You know, a lot of people look at oh, Dan McKay, just a guy down there just fixing shoes. Dan McKay's going to have a big pile of shoes there someday. I look at myself when I get to heaven, maybe a big pile of sermons I preached. Or you know, if you're a, an attorney, a big pile of cases that are there. A, a woman who stays at home, who take care of your family, maybe a pile of diapers on our dishes or dirty clothes or whatever else it is. I don't know what it would be. But whatever your, whatever your work is, think of your work that way. It's going to be there at the judgment seat that we do what we did to the glory of God. Then a final one. This isn't too convicting. I'll leave us with this one. How we use our tongue. <laughs> Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Every careless word that men shall speak will render account of it in the day of judgment. What, what, what comes out of our mouth is, is really what's in our heart. Uh, the, the, the mouth speaks out of the heart. That Someone has said all the tongue is, is it's the, it's the uh, bucket that goes down in the well and gets what in the, what's down in the heart and brings it out. So if you don't like what's coming out of your mouth, the problem in your tongue, it's your heart. Uh, where we speak out of uh, the abundance of the heart. I heard the old story years ago. A man said, oh, I love that old song. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. He said, I wish I had a thousand tongues to praise him. 
His friend said, not me. He says, I have enough problems with the one tongue that I have. So (laughs) we could relate to that. Well, anyway, the the, the final exam's coming for every one of us. Uh, These are the test questions, so we need to get ready and start cramming for this exam so you can get an A on the exam and hear those words, uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let me say this one final thing, though. There may be some of you here who are a bit older, and you may have heard this message just now this morning. You may be thinking to yourself, you know, I didn't get saved till later in life. Or I got saved at a certain point, but I've wasted a lot of my life. God gave me this one shot, and I've wasted most of it. And so, you know, what's the use for me to even try at this point? Listen, whatever you do here today, remember God is gracious in giving rewards. Begin to serve Him today. It's never too late. I wish I could go right in right now and preach a sermon on on Matthew 19. Remember the laborers in the vineyard? Some of them go out at 6 in the morning, another group at 9, another group at noon, another group at 3 in the afternoon. The last group goes out at 5 in the afternoon. They just work an hour. And I would say about me, I'm an all-day worker. I got saved when I was a little boy. I've had opportunity all my life to serve the Lord. But some people are 11th hour workers. And remember what, what the master comes and does? He gave them all a denarius. He gave them all a pay for the whole day. So God is gracious in giving rewards. If you will take the time that you, God's given to you, whether it's a year or 10 years or five years or just a few months or whatever it is, give God what's left of your life and he will reward you uh, beyond your wildest dreams. He's going to give us so much more than we could ever imagine. So don't give up. So my final really injunction to us all is let's live today in light of that day. Now let's uh, start cramming for the test now and preparing for it so we can hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you now that our salvation is not based on what we do, but on what Christ has done. We thank you that our salvation is solely based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I thank you, Father, for the unspeakable privilege that we have to serve Jesus Christ with our good works. I pray that the ambition and the aim of each one of us here would be uh, to please you, that we wouldn't waste the one shot at life that you give to us. We'd take dead aim and we'd use that one shot to bring glory and honor to your great name. That we'd live today in light of that day as we await the coming of our Lord. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen. I was in high school in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, We got to baccalaureate night, rewards night, after four years, and I didn't even know what was going on. I was surprised by the whole event myself. And uh, person after person was being called and recognized and scholarships, and rewards, and plaques, and I, I remember sitting there going, what, where, how, oh, and then Jim Mahoney, this kid sitting next to me, uh, was called over and over again, and I remembered in eighth grade, Jim and I got straight A's the whole year in eighth grade, and we were both recognized, so I was thinking, here we went into high school, what, what, where was I? You know, I could have, I had the same ability as he did, but I didn't use it. There were reasons for that, some of it beyond my control. Then I got saved, and I went to Bible college. And one day I was walking past the chapel, and it was baccalaureate night. And this was at the beginning of the Bible college years. And I remember thinking, four years, it's coming that night, and that is not going to happen to me again. And in the back of my mind, I just kept that picture of wanting that night to go very well. I wanted it to go well. I knew my family would be there, and they were. And I was able to get involved in a lot of stuff at Bible college and praise the Lord with his grace. And on baccalaureate, with everybody gathered in a big, big seating, the biggest deal for me was my dad. My dad was there. And when I was being recognized, 
my dad stood and all I could see was my dad. You've got to be thinking in the back of your mind about the day you're going to see dad. We just forget. It just seems so far away, doesn't it? And with the rockets firing over Jerusalem, I'm not sure it's that far away. <laughs> Have a heavenly perspective about how you spend the afternoon. Just in the back of your mind, to live intentionally. I want that day to go well, right? So then that means I got to be thinking about some things that come out of my mouth and my attitudes and my motives. Amen. Brother Mark, I could have listened to, I, I want to listen to you all day. And I, I think I'm going to get the opportunity. <laughs> awesome. Let's stand and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just uh, want to seal this work and this word in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father God, that by your spirit in us, you would remind us as forgetful as we are, as distracted as we are, Lord, to make our days count. And in the moments when we have the choices to go for the gold or the precious stone to build with those kinds of things, Lord, just remind us and help us to choose the precious gems over the wood, hay, and the stubble. We thank you, God. It's by your grace, and we want to be open and obedient. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said a hearty. Just so we know for practical purposes, how many of you are planning to stay for round two? All right, so we need the overflow rooms, ushers, uh, ready, all right? So God bless you. We'll see you in a few minutes. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.